In today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. Any person can become addicted to these substances, period. The path of addiction, you will lose track of all of these things because your brain has been hijacked. Knowing the, uh, the spiritual need to bring yourself to Allah helps in dealing with this issue because now you're understanding the nafs. The possibility for transformation in someone like this is so powerfully strong that they can apply that hikmah that Allah gives them you know, in this process to their whole life. You know, it can be amazingly transformative. Opioid addiction in the Muslim community. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam, rasulullah, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another uh, episode of the Iman Wire podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the issue of uh, prescription drug abuse in the Muslim community. So uh, I'm joined today by uh, Maltasa Matiya, the um, co-founder of Medina Institute, Dr. Mohammed Galan, PhD in neuroscience, and uh, our dear uh, Dr. Hassan Awan, an internist and also um, a physician who also treats uh, opioid addiction. And he's so. also my personal doctor. Too. Oh, he is? Yeah, he is. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He, actually, we have a joke that he's like everybody's doctor. In the area. We love him. Yeah. Well, that's supposed to be confidential, but... <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, patient, patient, oh, no. Confidentiality, oh, right? It's okay. Just don't share my records. <laughs> well, he's a patient, so he can... It's already online now. He's a patient, so he can say it, right? You can't say anything, but, you know. So, Matasun can say everything, but Hassan can't say anything. Yes, that's right. So, uh, you know, I think this is a big issue that it's not really um, been, I think, talked about specifically in our community. Um, for a lot of reasons, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll turn it first to you, Matasum, because I think this is something that you've been trying to raise recently. And and, and um, what is it that you see that? You know, yeah, I think there's there's a perception that that drug abuse is only like you know heroin addiction or, or these these drugs that you would go into you know certain areas to sort of purchase. And I think uh, we've been losing sight of the fact that uh, you know the prescription drug addiction. I mean, CNN has brought a lot of attention to it recently. Van Jones and what's that guy's name? Newt Gingrich. He's still Newt Gingrich, yeah. The one good thing Newt Gingrich is doing in life is he teamed up with Van Jones, right, to bring attention to to what's happening with uh, prescription drug abuse in America. America, but I think the Muslim community feels that it's immune to it. And what I've seen personally is in Maryland alone, we, we've had some very high-profile individuals coming from very good families who are struggling, struggling with opioid addiction, specific Percocet. I've seen it in New Jersey. Uh, young young men, uh, literally the past year, maybe two or three young men have died uh, because of this issue. So I think we need to address it some way, shape, or form. And uh, let people know that there's a way to get help and there's a path that they can take. Uh, and that's why we wanted to have this conversation. Hassan, you know, with you, you're, you're a doctor. So can you talk to us a little bit about the nature of addiction? Sure. Well, you know, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, salatu salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen. Um, well, first off, I wanted to thank you all for having me. Um, well, it is a real problem. So opiate addiction is very, very real. You know, my sense is that the biggest problem about it, you know, is is that you know the patient population, you know, you know, Muslim or non-Muslim, they're not aware of the, you know, you know, of it being an addiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oftentimes a lot of patients are placed on you know these kind of medicines without that kind of awareness that that if you take you know too much of it or if you take it for a long period of time, you know, unconsciously, subconsciously. Um, one becomes, you know, very, um, you know, you, you know, used to the effects of, uh, you know, this kind of medicine. Let me just ask: Do you think they're aware, but they think it's okay because it's coming from a doctor? Yes. So that's part of the uh, 
cultural problem of this that because my doctor is prescribing me right. this particular medicine, um, it must be okay because it's not heroin, it's not illegal, you know, these sort of things. So, comes from a nice pharmacist wearing a nice jacket, yes, and and smiling all of that. To me, right? and, you know, I think one of the other things is that, you know, uh, in medicine, I think, uh, um, Hassan, you can probably attest to this, is that in probably the last 15, 20 years, there's been a push about that we're under treating patients' pain. So, so there's a thing, there's a, there's this idea that you have to, and, and you want to make patients comfortable, you want to treat them appropriately with pain medication. But we're also also sort of seeing, I think, on the other side, that this is now becoming being abused more and more. I think probably oh, yes, in the last 10, 15 years. So, and yes. like you said, like you know, the, the the patient thinks that like, oh, well, my doctor is prescribing it, um, so it must be fine. But you know, there's a lot of doctors that really don't aren't aware of the problem itself, or, or sort of, you know putting blinders on for a lot of patients, I think. Well, yes, absolutely. So the main issue there is that um, that kind of misconception you know, or misperception comes from an experience of hospital medicine. So doctors are actually in many ways at fault um, to, for that kind of behavior. You know, like why? Because, you know, in hospital medicine, we do want to make sure that patients, you know, like their pain is getting very well controlled into the point that they have no pain and they're very somnolent and, and even sleeping post-op or whatever. Uh, the problem is, is that since um, you know most doctors, d you know, do not get um, enough outpatient office training, they don't realize that that kind of model cannot really be entirely used on the outside. So it just trickles over in many ways. So that's also, you know, you know, a major part of this problem. You know, it's interesting you say that, Hassan and Mohammed. I'm going to bring you in. Please jump in anytime. When I was I was in an accident in Saudi Arabia. And I was in the hospital there for like a week. And for them to give me something for my pain, they, they just wouldn't do it. Like I was in really bad pain and they were just like, oh, it's okay. You know, here's some Advil. Yeah. <laughs> like, so they're seeing that you're a functional person. Right. You're, you know, you're sitting up. You're not, you know, writhing or like rolling over, you know, with so much pain. Right. So, they're, um, so they were able to actually assess you and say, um, you know, mashallah, you're not exhibiting the kind of pain that we've seen, you know, patients exhibit. So we're not going to give you those strong medications. So that probably worked against you there because I've heard of that story. I right. know your situation well. It's interesting because well. over there they will overprescribe antibiotics like no tomorrow and they won't give you that pain medication. Yes, that's right. But isn't it, I was under the impression that historically pain medication even in America was not easily prescribed. Yes, um, so that's an interesting point. Um, so, so, so even now, you know, doctors have to have, you know, like the particular licenses, you know, you know your DEA number. You have to apply for these things. Mm -hmm. So now, now the process is streamlined. You know, any you know doctor, every doctor who's a practicing doctor has to have a DEA to, um, you know, to really practice medicine in mm -hmm. America. So it's a lot easier now, um, you know, than before. So there were kind of loopholes, and it's interesting. That, um, you know, one could even say that, uh, you know, like the rise of prescription narcotic medications probably began, you know, <laughs> in terms of the frequency of prescription, probably no more than 10 to 15 years ago. So, I mean, so I would top it out at 15 years ago. So probably mm. before then, um, it was, you know, it, um, like you did have to. Um, you know, you know, it took a lot of work, even in the hospital, to actually prescribe uh, pain medications. So it wasn't a change in culture. It was just a change in logistics bureaucracy that prevented this? Sure. I mean, so a combination of that. So okay. my sense is a combination. Now, in America, you know, as in most yeah. places, it's really the pharmaceutical companies who, you know, own these medications. They yeah. they mass produce them. So so there isn't, you know, a centrally localized, you know, entity that controls, you know, um, and so certainly you have the FDA, the DEA, and these yeah. sort of things, and these kinds of, you know, entities. But since, um, since these prescriptions are being made by independent companies, 
um, you know, these independent companies obviously saw that um, there was a lot of money in making these medications, so they began to make you know more and more and more. And I think like that streamlined that process. That's mm. my personal opinion. So this is why it's, I mean. So that's clearly why it's impacting everyone. But so let, let's take it back to at least what I've seen. I mean, Mohammed, I don't know about you. I've had people come to me with this issue, um, and they just they don't know what to do. I mean, some have had the courage to admit that hey, I'm I'm addicted to something mm. here, and I need help. But I think there's a big stigma with that, you know, acknowledging that there's something wrong with me. Like, how can I be addicted to it? You know, and, you know, Muhammad, I know we've spoken in the past about, you know, some of the companions of the Messenger of God, who may have not been addicted to prescription drugs. They had yeah. their own issues. Yeah. Well, because they didn't have prescription drugs at the time. Right. But, well, like the story of Nuraiman, for example, it's interesting. Him and his son were alcoholics. Well, and so there seems to be a genetic hereditary factor involved there because both him and his son had brought issues with the community and the companions were having trouble dealing with them because they just couldn't give up their addiction to alcohol. And initially the Prophet allowed the you know uh, retri- you know the little bit of uh, punishment for them, but at some point he stopped it. He sallallahu said let him be because this is not somebody just trying to get pleasure out of this. This is someone who's hooked on this thing. And he attested for Nu'iman that he loves Allah and his messenger, despite his addiction. Um, but it was something that was present with the, with the context that they had. They had this issue and they didn't have the systems that we have in place today with rehab centers and I need help and all of that stuff. And well, but, but, but I think, you know, someone, a, a, you know, from what I've seen, the people coming to my door, a 30-something-year-old uh, Muslim sister coming from a practicing family, Wearing a hijab or a, or a twenty-five something year old brother from a known family, it's going to be a major sense of embarrassment about going to a rehab center. Like they just, you yeah. know, uh, they don't <laughs> want to do that. So you know, what do they do? You know, Hassan, from your from your experience as a doctor, if if they're listening to us now and they recognize that they have that problem, but they don't know where to go to get help, too embarrassed to go to the imam, too sure. embarrassed to talk to their families. What, what's the first thing you would tell them from a medical standpoint? Sure. You know, Bismillah. You know, I would say that um, you know, first and foremost, you know, if they were, to, I mean, you know, of course, my response is, you know, please see your doctor, whoever your doctor is, a Muslim or non-Muslim, you know, see your doctor and express this. I mean, first and foremost, um, you know, you know, one's health records are confidential, so you should, re- you know, one should really tell their doctor, you know, if they have a problem, you know, if they have, you know. To this kind of issue because it won't get out to the general public. You know, I know that that's obviously a fear that, you know, many, you know, people have naturally that, you know, who, who's able to see my records, you know, my health records, et cetera. You know, will this affect my future? Will this affect my employment? Yes, my employment, my reputation, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, we, you know, as healthcare workers and really as the Muslim c- c- community, we need to realize that, that. Yeah, this problem, you know, you know, is a Western problem and now an international problem, but it's an American problem in particular. I mean, coming back to some of the uh, statistics, I don't know all the particular statistics offhand, but what I wanted to also mention here is that one of the talks I have, I mean, I, 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 I've done this so much now, I have talks in a sense. I have like the talk, mm. the introductory talk. I'm, I, you know, of course, it's not scripted, but it's right. just, you know, something I've said over and over again because I have... Uh, treated Muslims and non-Muslims actually, you know, for this, um, who come and um, who um, ask about this. And um, it's obvious you see the signs on the patient, but you somewhat wait for the person to actually ask you because 
because there's a kind of receptivity involved, like they have to be open, you know, to having that kind of dialogue rather than it being forced or pushed. But one of the first things I say is that, uh, um, you know, you know, for the age range of 20 to really 50, the number one cause of death in the United States is, you know, overdosing on narcotics, period. That is a huge statistic. That's the number one cause of death. So just kind of sit back and just imagine that. Um, it's not, you know, diabetes. It's not stroke. Of course, we're talking about an older age range, but we're talking about narcotic addiction and That's narcotic shocking. overdose. It's very shocking. That's shocking. Yes. And uh, the numbers are in the 25,000 to even more. Um, there's been to reported cases of, you know, overdoses. I think uh, the last statistic I read was at least that. It's probably much more than that. Um, but um, but another statistic mentions that 10% of the American population, you know, is using some, you know, form of either, you know, kind of illicit substance or um, a narcotic uh, to get high. 10%, you know, <coughs> up to 10%. That's 25 million. So I, I want to bring this to you in one second, Hasan. Mohammed, from a neurological standpoint, what are these drugs doing to our brains? Well, before that, I just want to have one question about the, before getting into that. The doctor-patient relationship, as far as I understand it, went from a paternalistic into more of a collaborative. Yes, that's right. And so the the way, I mean, in Canada, for example, it's prohibitive. No, no pharmaceutical company can advertise their drugs and go ask your doctor about this and that Welcome on TV. But in America, you have that. Yeah. And I find it fascinating that patients would have the wherewithal or the guts to come in and almost demand, yes, I need right. this pain medication, right. I need all this stuff. And the doctors seem to comply with that, as, you know, in addition to the pharmaceutical company kind of doing their push in marketing and, and giving enticements to the doctors themselves. And then when the patient gets in a position of weakness where they lose control of themselves, the doctor doesn't jump in. Yes, that's true. So in many ways um, that, um, you know, the problem is, is that you're kind of right, um, but it does take the, the community, you know, kind of outpatient physician to actually see it. So I, um, so I bring it up. So I have the mm -hmm. talk with, you know, every, you know, young patient who asks me even on the first day you know, for narcotics, you know, even if it's a you know, motor vehicle accident, for whatever reason, they've come to see me, um, you know, post-op, right? Um, you know, you know, hey doc, I need narcotics. I've heard about, you know, I've read about oxycodone, but you know, right. you know, you know, uh, you know, dilaudid is, a, you know, you know, you know, I kind of heard about dilaudid. <laughs> I'd like yeah. to, you know, you know, experience that. So whatever the context, you know, mm -hmm. that is my moment and opportunity to actually have that conversation. Yeah. So are, are most of the people like just to, you know, just to, to look at where this problem begins, are most of the people who are asking for the drugs like they're like, as you said, after a motor vehicle collision or, uh, you know, post-operative, or is there some other situations where people it's mainly are starting those, those? So mainly those two, and most of the time they've already received those medications either from the emergency room or from an inpatient hospital admission. So they've already had, an, you know, narcotics, so they know how it feels. And, um, you know, so now there's a sense of, oh, doc, I have so much pain now. When I was in the hospital, Dilaudid worked wonderfully, or oxycodone worked very good, or morphine did, or something like that. So, so then they ask, you know, can, can I have more of this? Um, so first I begin to ask them, all right, so, so how many tablets have you had? You know, you know, how many were you prescribed? How many did you take in the hospital? And, and, and so then after I have that kind of talk with them, I see, you know, where they're at. I can tell by their responses how, you know, impulsive, you know, the demand is. If they begin to get frustrated with that kind of 
questioning them, I already know that the person's actually, you know, hooked on the medicine. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just automatic, actually, because there's this impulsivity involved in, oh, like, why are you asking me this? I need this. It's like you a know? monster within. Um, yeah, exactly. Can't control, yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like a gateway because I think Motosumi can speak to this too because, <coughs> you know, uh, you know, I've received uh, in the hospital some, some medication before, and I know I, re I have one in particular I received, and I remember the feeling I got from it, and I was like, wow, I mean, that was that was really something, you know, and. You know, alhamdulillah, I never had to have that, a reason to have that again, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I can still remember that, yeah. that, and I can see, like, if someone's gotten it for, you know, uh, for, you know, an accident or something like that, I, I think you had a similar... Oh, um, oh, yeah, when I was, how I was, as I was saying, when I was in Arabia, they wouldn't give me anything, and then when I, when I came back, after a terrible bus accident, and then I, when I came back to the States, and they rushed me to the hospital, and they gave me some medication... And, uh, you know, I had this extreme euphoric feeling as if my yeah. soul was flying out of <laughs> yeah, my body. Yeah. I called my brother, yeah. who's a pharmacist, <laughs> yes. and I said, something's wrong with me. <laughs> he said, what's wrong? I said, I, uh, something's wrong. I don't know yes, how to describe it. He said, did they give you a pill? I was like, yeah. He goes, okay, go to sleep. All right, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is, so this is all very interesting. I mean, because what is pain? And why do we have to kill pain? I mean, so there's right, a lot of right. um, questions, you know, you know, you know, important ones to actually to reflect upon here actually that so in the Middle East they wanted you to experience that pain pain is right transformative especially for the young person you're sitting back you're in pain you're thinking about your life you're actually in a state of you know of meditation of to reflection right um, like that is an opportunity that's coming from Allah for for you to sit with yourself and ask yourself about your life what you know kind of what just happened right. um, I was catapulted from this bus Right. right and these sort of things right. and <clears throat> and you have that opportunity to sit there in pain and actually reflect pain can be the beginning of a transformation pain is always you know especially for the spiritual person like the beginning of some kind of process of right. you know you know you know of you know muhasaba you know kind of self evaluation the tightening that the prophet um, felt in the cave yeah. so there's there's two things i want to i'm going to bring this to the neurological standpoint from you in one second but hassan i want to make this very practical Sure. Yeah. I'm again. I'm a thirty-something-year-old soccer mom, Muslim woman with three beautiful children, or am I? I'm a forty-year-old Muslim father with wonderful children, and I'm addicted to Percocet or hydrocodone, and I know that I am. Right. And I have two paths to go down. One is the path where I'm going to just continue on this path of addiction, and the other path is I'm going to take the difficult path of getting help. Walk me through the path of getting help and speak to me straight up, excuse <coughs> my language, raw about the ups right. and downs that I'm going to have on that path and what it would lead to and what the other path of continuing my addiction would most likely lead to. Sure. So in terms of uh, the first path of admitting and accepting that you have an addiction and that you want to try to do something about it, um, well, you know, you know, the bottom line is you're... So this is going to be very painful. Uh, uh, this is going to be a painful process. You have to accept that because um, your body, you know, consciously and unconsciously is craving to this medicine, not only your body, but your soul, your mind is as well. So, you know, so both are in a sense hooked on this medicine that so we need to slowly try to taper you off. So my first step, you know, kind of would be depending on the degree of addiction, uh, the profundity of it, or just how much uh, you may be. 
I will attempt to taper you myself personally. And is this a, is going to be a painful experience? So it will be painful, um, but you've already made you know, this particular intention, that you have an intention, you want to um, um, you know, come off these medications no matter what, because I have a family and you know all of this. And the success of that, let's just stop at this stage right. for one second, and the success of that could also be determined based on the social structure I have. If I have that support system, yes, will support, it be stronger? Yes, you know, much, much stronger. Because bottom line is, um, you know, first and foremost, you need to be loved you know, right. by someone, um, by your family. Um, the Prophet, he loved, you know, he loved Noeman. Yeah. You know, he loved him. He said, he loves me, I love him. Yeah. Uh, like that is, I mean, like that's just an amazing, just, you know, point from the Sira yeah. that he was given that love. He, you know, Salam, you know, inculcated that love into the Sahaba so that they would treat this person with love. Yeah. We need to, you know, we need to do that. So uh, first and foremost, love. Um, so if you have that social support, uh, um, if, you, um, if you, um, um, your spouse, your children, uh, your spouse has to know. To, to depending on the age of the children, you know, the children may not need to know, right. um, but someone has to know. At least one person has to know, because um, it's then that one person who can help with the medications, with the medication management. Because I'm going to um, experience things. These withdrawal yeah. symptoms yes. that, and so easily you can stop that process by just taking another pill. Right. So those pills have to be regulated. But I mean, so what is that process? What is withdrawal? Um, like the initial signs of it is just the constant craving, the increased uh, craving for these you know, medications. First, it begins in your mind. Then it starts uh, translating into the body shaking, um, you know, headaches, you know, even you know, cold-like symptoms, um, spasms, muscle spasms. You can get to the point of you know, abdominal aches, pains, and nausea and vomiting. Um, you know, all of these are possibilities. Um, so even to the point of vomiting, like that can happen, and um, especially in its you know severe form. So you know, all of that needs to be known by the person. But but they should also be told, and I would tell them that you know if they follow a tapering process and they're you know and they have uh, the willpower and the iman, you know, especially for the Muslim com you know community, you have to have this you know, sense of iman in this process. Mm -hmm. You have to have faith, you know, faith in Allah here that, you know, Allah in his hikmah has, you know, is making you go through this process for some, you know, for some reason. And you're learning something, you know, ilm, you know, kind of nafs here. You're learning something about yourself. And uh, that Allah is with you, not only wherever you are, but while you're patiently persevering, you know, in Allah sabirin. Um So, so all of that is important. Um, but if you take the tapering regimen, the with all symptoms are not as you know kind of severe you know as they would be say if you just stopped cold turkey and you know didn't take any medications and then attempted to just go on with your life you know as if you know, nothing happened you know you know by day one or you know most likely after 72 hours you'd begin to have some you know serious problems on um, depending on the degree of abuse and the degree of uh, you know misuse abuse and you know addiction um, it may take up to a few weeks or four weeks or even six weeks to actually um, not show any signs of withdrawal. Six painful weeks that would end with me being now drug-free and no longer having this addiction yes. to this drug. So the time or like uh, this whole process, you know, it can't be defined, you know, I mean, so I cannot say it's going to take six weeks right. for everyone, okay. um, you know, 
For some people, it takes a few weeks. For some, you know, even longer. I'm like, there's relapses. There's all of this. So when you recognize that you have an addiction, um, you know, you know, it could take years actually. And you know, you know, kind of most people who have been into rehabilitation programs, they they define themselves as an addict. You know, even when um, you know, it's been years, even like ten years, you know, after alcohol, for example. You know, you know, I'm an addict. You still have that self kind of definition. Why? Because that's important to keep there. Because you could relapse. Mm. So, so you're so you're in that potential phase of you know relapse. I think you know Muhammad can maybe say more about that and may know you know more you know may may know more about this kind of process of you know addiction in the mind. So regardless of the timeline, yeah. let's just say I'm now drug free. Yeah, sure. Leading now to a normalized. I've got my life back. Yeah, I'm no sure. longer a slave to this yes, yes. pill. But if I don't take this path, which is clearly still a difficult path, but one that needs to happen, and I stick to my addiction. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, here's what will happen. And here's what happens. First, you know, it's important to kind of know what, you know, addiction is. It's really kind of in a nutshell, not to use too many technical terms, but the, you know, one definition is, is that the constant sense of craving and compulsive, you know, compulsive behavior that, you know, alters your, you know, one's own kind of lifestyle, um, you know, to the extent that, uh, you know, to the point that, you know, you know, every, you know, normal activity and relationship is really compromised mm. by, by the addiction. Mm. Um, once that begins to occur, once the person is no longer functioning, um, you know, with the social, you know, personal, psychological and social equilibrium that they had, you have an addiction. Um, once the person stops going to parties because they would rather, I mean, you know, you know, kind of social events because they'd rather be at home and, you know, take a pill. Um, once they start, you know, ignoring uh, their loved ones because they'd rather be alone to take this pill. Mm. Um, once they realize that they're, you know, you know, obsessed with thinking about my pill that's sitting at home while I'm working mm. and not remembering Allah, not remembering uh, the blessings of Allah, uh, the bounties of Allah, um, you know, in terms of your work or your family or anything else, that is addiction. Um, so that's, I mean, so one needs to recognize that that will continue. And now your lower self, your nafs has complete control in a sense, has dominated even your self, um, your sense of, you know, kind of self-identity, self-nobility, it's kind of just taken over that monster within mm -hmm. that, that, that you mentioned. You know, it's now sitting in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. It's no longer somewhere, you know, below where you can um, kind of sit over it. Actually, the Latin term dominate means to sit over, actually, you know, dominion, right? Um, you know, establishing, you know, you know, istawa. You know, in Arabic, it has this kind of connotation to establish yourself, you know, over your nafs, your lower nafs. Once that hasn't happened, once there's been this total flip, um, now you're going to live a destructive, a, a path to destruction is probably the best way to put that. Now the nafs has totally taken over. It has no regard to for your life, to for who you are, for yourself in preservation. It only cares about, you know, in pleasuring itself with this pseudo bliss that is a high, you know, from narcotics or from That's any other actually interesting because I was going to say that the, um, the, the brain areas involved in addiction, 
the dopaminergic neurons firing in the basal ganglia, the caudate putamen, the, the caudate nucleus. All of these areas are involved in behavior and in, in movement and in behavior, initiating behavior. And dopamine is kind of the high that you get from it. All these drugs, the, the prescription narcotics, they're the second cousins of heroin. They're the legal versions of it. So you take these drugs, you fire these dopaminergic neurons, they activate pleasure centers in the brain, and then you want to seek more of that. Now, they've done some studies with rats looking at how they behave if you give them the option of taking something like cocaine or food and because um, it also activates the same brain area. And if you give free access to uh, rats with water that has cocaine in it versus food, they once they get addicted, and you, the way they do it is they have a lever where they can just press with their paw and then it just uh, gives them more. They will keep pressing on that lever and activating their dopamine, the dopaminergic centers until they die. They will stop eating, they will stop drinking, they will stop playing with their mates, they will stop doing all of that stuff. Mm. So that's what uh, Hassan was saying with the path of addiction. You will lose track of all of these things because your brain has been hijacked. And these areas are... The purpose of these areas in the brain is because you want to gain pleasure from doing things that benefit your physiological body. They're normally activated when you eat after you've been hungry for a while. And so for the brain, it tells the brain that, okay, this is a good thing to do. You got hungry, so now you, go, you want an eight. And it just releases a little bit. Uh, when you hang out with your loved ones, for example, with your spouse, when you have relations with your spouse, it gets activated. All of that is to increase this bond, the physiological function of increased bondship. Um, these drugs hijack these areas for their own nefarious ends. The one thing that I wanted to ask, though, about the, the, the tapering off and the desires and all this stuff, because addiction right now is classified as a disease. But that's not unanimously agreed upon with physicians. Sure. And one of the most primary examples they cite is um, the one from the Vietnam War. Because there was a lot of heroin addiction, which is, again, these are cousins of heroin. A lot of heroin addiction amongst vets who were coming from Vietnam. And I think it was President Nixon at the time. They, they issued a decree and said, you cannot board the plane until you test negative. And when they were presented, the idea is when they were presented with two choices, either you continue on this path of your addiction or you lose everything and you get stuck in the fields of Vietnam. Just about all of them stopped it. Cold turkey boarded the planes, and I think something like only 10 or 15% of them had a relapse within a fi five-year period because now they had something else to look forward to right. that was more important to them. Than, and so the question I ask is, with the addiction model of tapering off and all this, is the tapering off and the time that it takes and the pain that's experienced, some of it is psychological, yes, and some of it is physiological, is that may, being made difficult by not providing them with a, something that is more important to them than seeking? Is that yes, addressed yes. in the oh, table? Yes. I mean, so absolutely. Like, that is the very problem. Like, and that is the cause of relapse because uh, there isn't anything after that for the most part yeah. for most patients. 90% of them at yeah. least, 95, I would even say, maybe even 99. Wow. Um, and the reason why I say that is because there's no set system, you know, placed to, for patients who have, you know, narcotic addictions like this. You know, it's only when it gets real bad. And, that, and so this is probably after many attempts of attempting to do something like this, tapering off, that they're admitted into rehabs. Hmm. Um, even inpatient rehabs, fine. Some of them, some of them are a month. 
maybe a week, maybe even 90 days. Hmm. But then after that, you know, then what? Yes. Like, you know, so these are people who have lost their families. Uh, They've burned a lot of bridges right. yeah. um, to make it to where they are now, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, like the Nafsal Ahmad of Bissu has taken yeah. over entirely. They've burned it all. I mean, like, you know, even to the core of those who could love them. I mean, you know, you know, I've sat with addicts and their mothers. And when I see the degree of frustration, resentment, and anger mm. that mothers have to further child, I'm, I'm like, subhanAllah, yeah. this is kind of unbelievable. But so it's not there. So you're right. You know, they had a lot to look, you know, you know, forward to, like, you know, like these soldiers. Yes. They had they had a whole new life. They had, you know, loved ones. They would be loved. Yeah. Because they were, you know, because they were war vets, you know, mm -hmm. you know, at least back then. Yeah. Like that's a whole nother topic, yeah. war vets now <laughs> and how they're managed, you know, yeah. healthcare wise even. Yeah. Right. But um but but this interesting aspect of fear, they were given an ultimatum. You know, actually fear on that level works. Right. The machafa works. You know, actually fear works. Mm. So you know, fear based uh treatment, you know, at the beginning is actually very important because it allows you to see what this monster is, what it's, you know, doing. It's kind of like that shock, like, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. You're destroying yourself, right? Yeah. So um so unfortunately, you know, it's not even in um it's not there. I mean, but so this is where the Muslim community has something special, I believe. Because mm. um, if we have, um, you know, a process, a program, you know, inshallah, if we have and when we have, you know, more Muslim social workers, mm. um, you know, kind of aligning themselves with Muslim doctors, aligning themselves with resident scholars, you know, imams mm. and, you know, others who are, um, who have, you know, experience in this um, with the general broader community as they become, you know, more aware of this problem. Then you have exactly what you're talking about that you need. You well, you need a loving community and accepting yeah. one. That and then you need, um, you know, down the road to be placed in positions of actually working, volunteer work, and these sort of things. There's there's a whole process yeah. that can be done to behaviorally to kind of you know, to reprogram your life actually in so many ways. But I mean, so the, so the short answer is unfortunately, no, that's the problem. Um, cause, cause, cause this would be the first step. The first step would be that, um, we taper you and then we see yeah. how you do. But, but I wanted to make just a small point, um, that, uh, um, you know, I like the point about the heroin because that's part of my initial talk uh -huh. that, you know, like, so, I mean, so I hold the pills in front of them and say, con and con congratulations to you're taking an additive of heroin. Yeah. So did you know that? 90% of the patients are shocked. Like, so what are you talking about, Doc? This is Percocet. Yeah. No, no, yeah. you know what? The it's in the family so nice, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. So when they register that, that actually hits them. Oh, like, interesting. Like for some, they actually have a step back kind of moment. Like, wow, oh my God, I'm taking, you know, something that's very similar to heroin. Yeah. And so that's an important point to yeah. actually make in terms of education, you know, and awareness. Yeah. So, I mean, like, in, one thing you, you mentioned was about the general Muslim community not realize that this is a problem, but also we have certain attitudes towards the problem itself, that even just addiction itself. Oh, it's just, it's completely 100% spiritual problem. This problem is just, this is just because of a lack of Iman and they fell into this hole and, you know, it's just, and then you have this other part of the whole shame culture of Elevant in our community that... You know, if we draw attention to this or for the addict themselves, like, well, a big barrier to them getting treatment is that, you know, they don't want anybody to know. So, like, what are the what are the ways we're going to navigate to that? Because I think that's a big issue is that the community's attitude towards addicts, that it's it's a very 
blameworthy attitude is not there's, there's no rahma in it there's it reinforces no, no the addiction it. actually exactly i mean yes, it, just, it just right. pushes people further it, away it kind of isolates them yeah yes that's right well, that's what i think hassan's point earlier that he brought up is that you you need a family unit there that's really going to show that that love and that support to the person trying to come over this obstacle that you may not necessarily have in the community. And so if there's a strong family support, I mean, our man had Sayyidina Rasulullah <laughs> behind him. He had that love directly from him. I think you need one or two characters around you who understand what you're going through and they can help you. Uh, I mean, our community is struggling with a lot of things. I and mean, look, we had a situation in Maryland, a very well-known religious figure who was tried with this. Very well-known religious figure, mm-hmm. and he was tried with addiction. And unfortunately, and Hassan, you're aware of this, a lot of the conversation was not initially about trying to get him help. It was more it about was this. more politicized. Yeah, it was yeah. politicized. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah was, he was ridiculed. And, you know, the way yeah. I saw him, like, that's our brother. And and from what I know about addiction, he has a monster raging inside him that he just does not know how to control. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, for me, uh, I would always go back to the awareness of the spiritual path, the awareness of the nafs, the awareness of the qalb, knowing the, uh, the the spiritual need to bring yourself to Allah helps in dealing with this issue because now you're understanding the nafs. When that monster is roaring, you know that that's, that's how ugly my nafs inside me. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things is, you know, just uh, we all have to have that, that self-humility. Like I can mm-hmm. tell you, as I said, having experienced the sensation of that medication, that I totally understand where these these people can go down that road, and it's like anything else in 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 our life. I mean, there, there's other addictions that can happen. There's sure. other sins that we mm-hmm. could fall into, and if we all recognize that we're all liable, like we're all you know, no one's immune to yes. any temptation. You know, saying so people you know, people people want to escape from real problems, right? Yeah, you, you, exactly. You're having marital issues. Uh, you're yeah. having issues with your children. Uh, there's there's issues with your parents, and then all of a sudden you get this pill, and all these That's issues right. they just disappear. Yeah. So the reality is, is that any soul, any person can become addicted to these substances, period. You know, unless, mashallah, you're a wali of Allah who's protected in some way. You know, I like to give the hypothetical of Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jalani or, or, you know, Jalaluddin al-Rumi, right? right? You know, radiallahu anhuma. You know, I, you know, I like to use those two for my, you know, Muslim population. Right. Or I like to use, like, you know, Mother Teresa for the non-Muslim kind of population. Right. That unless you're these kinds of figures... Maybe you'll be protected from this, but if you're not, you we all have that possibility. You know, all each and every one of us. You know, it just takes that occasion. You know, you gave your own example of being in the hospital and receiving pain medications. Um, you know, just imagine that you've had a hard life for some reason. Your family has left you, or you, or your loved ones have, and then you have a motor vehicle accident. Hmm. You you're already saddened. You're in a state of depression. Because of, you know, your life and just the ugliness of the world around you and what we're hearing on TV all the time, you know, you know, you know about the Ummah or whatever. And now you have you know, dilated or Percocet and you're taking it and it's giving you those moments of, you know, bliss. Of course, a person is going to become addicted, you know, you know, you know, to that coming from such an ugly, you know, perception of the world and their own life. So there's a lot of issues, you know, into, you know, kind of why and the house. I mean, like, so the whys and the hows of why one becomes addicted. And so, I mean, like, those need to be on the table. And that, and it needs to be recognized that, you know, anyone being prescribed narcotics, even if the dose is appropriate, has the chance of actually becoming addicted. So they need to be careful about how long they take it for. That and they need 
to negotiate their perception of pain and their level of functioning. Say if they have an accident or like a knee replacement or something. And especially if you're young, especially if you're young. So in this 20 to 50, I'm going to call young 20 uh, to 50, right. you know, here, you know, very, very important. So I think, you know, before we close this up, I mean, uh, Muhammad and Hassan and Salim were, were here. And, and I know that there's someone that's going to be listening to this that is going to be in that 20 to 50 range Muslim practicing that is struggling with this issue. What is the one thing that you want to tell them, Muhammad and then Hassan? Oh, man. <laughs> um, it's not so much tell them. I think I would want to listen to them first mm. because they've been told so much, mm. you know, Part of the pain is the psychological trauma, whatever it is that they're going through. And yes, it started off because of medication for an accident or whatever the case may be, but then they got hooked on it and they wanted to experience these moments of bliss. Well, I would want to sit down and just listen to them. What is it that makes these moments of bliss so important to you? And from that self-disclosure, I think a lot of healing can come forward from it. Uh, before issuing any advice or counsel that I may have, um, that would, I think that would solve a lot of issues for them, just to be able to talk about mm -hmm. it. And then after that, it's just like we've been talking about the loving care and the non-judgmental fashion of directing them to help to address this. But unless they consciously acknowledge where this pain is coming from, mm -hmm. the psychological aspect of it, mm -hmm. and deal with it, I think all of the other mediations, maybe just surface treatments that will last for a temporary period before they go back to it because we haven't dealt with the root cause of the problem. That's just really what I would have to say about it. So, mashallah. Um, so, I mean, so I would add into that wonderful response that, um, that, you know, if they do become consciously aware of this, that is their moment of opportunity to actually first and foremost return to Allah. Mm -hmm. And at that moment that there's, that there's hope they um so you so yes yeah, so you have hope that you have hope that, um to come off of this it does not have to control your life that and it is your call on how you want to define this if you want to see this as a problem or as a you know you know as an opportunity um there's many kinds of sins and vices and complexes out there you can call it whatever you want an addiction a side effect um but the the possibility for transformation in someone like this is so powerfully strong that they can apply that hikmah that Allah gives them you know in this process to their whole life actually you know it can be amazingly transformative and that self recognition is the beginning of the process of toba that any believer would have hmm. for anything um, for, for, for for any action for any you know vice um, for any sin um, and addiction is just a general word. You can be addicted to chocolate. And by the way, uh, that like that, you know, that mice um, kind of, you know, you know, like that research on mice. Guess what happened when they put the, the white cream of Oreo 
cookies next yeah. to cocaine, and they tested what those rats or mice <laughs> did. Uh, like they went for the Oreo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's, uh, this is very interesting. Yeah, you know, it is. And they took that over cocaine. Yes. Right. yes. So there's many kinds of sugar addictions, and so all Oreo the, addiction is going to be is, the next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's actually a really beautiful yes. point. I mean, the, the yeah. addiction of the dunya and these yes. other things that we love are star. You know what? I, 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 all I, just I was telling that the guys, it's all the same thing. I cut my sugar intake down from about. Uh, started monitoring and I was doing about 120 grams a day which apparently is average intake mm. for somebody who's trying to be healthy that's pretty and, good uh, yeah that's pretty good and I took it down to 35 to 40 grams a day mm. the first couple of days I was getting the DTs mm. I had the shakes I had like mm. the itch I wanted to go and grab some like it's just it's it's yeah, a it's real scary. thing it's scary it's a actually, real thing yeah, yeah so um, I want to thank uh, our guest here Dr. Hassan Awan Dr. Muhammad Awan Ustad Matal Salamatiya to all the listeners out there to Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and keep uh, track of our website, www.imanwire.com, for the latest articles and uh, podcast episodes. And we'll see you next time. Bye.